would send their greetings, and we pray for you often. We are thankful that you are here bringing this good news, this gospel to Kaiser. If you would turn your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 4, where we'll actually be moving around some this morning, more than, more than typical. But we'll start in 1 John chapter 4. Over at Grace Chapel recently, we've been working through a Ligonier study celebrating J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. Even though it was written a century ago, Machen's main point is every bit as true today. He said a religion that says nice things about Jesus, but then goes on to deny every major teaching about Jesus that we find in the New Testament, is not a different kind of Christianity. It's a different religion altogether. Uh, We remember Paul telling us this in 1 Corinthians 15. That without the resurrection of the dead, we have no reason for hope. So Paul does not say, well, you know, if it turns out that Jesus didn't get up from the dead, he still lives in our hearts. He doesn't say something like, well, even if this life is all there is, at least teaching about Jesus made us nice people and better people, so it was all worth it. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. He says there, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if what the Bible says about Jesus is not true, he says, go home, get drunk, empty the refrigerator, because there is no hope and there is no point. But of course, Paul follows that with, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says that because Jesus has gotten up from the dead, there is immense eternal hope. And that leaves us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. But the non-negotiable timeline of Jesus' work and ministry starts much earlier than the resurrection, doesn't it? Led by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John here pulls no punches. He says, any spirit, and by extension, any person who denies that Jesus has taken on humanity, is not from God. So if we're to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, we cannot miss the critical importance of the incarnation. The Holy Spirit says in 1 John 4, starting in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Let's pray together. Father, would you show us Christ this morning? Thank you that at exactly the right time, you caused him to be born among us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have willingly stooped to take on humanity, to take on being one of us. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see, please? 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we see here is the incarnation is critically important because the Holy Spirit says it's true. All the way through his first letter, John cycles through three basic ways that we know whether or not we are in Christ. He comes back to th- over and over again to three symptoms, we could say. He says that one way we know that Jesus is ours and we are his is knowing and admitting the truth about Jesus. He says we know because we obey the Father through Jesus. He says we know by loving the people around us because of Jesus. And in this cycle, John fights against two different lies about who Jesus is. He'll come back at the beginning of chapter 5 to insist that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore not merely human. But right here, John is knocking down a heresy that later on is called docetism. That's the fancy word. It means seemingism. So there were people in John's day who were totally happy to say, oh yes, Jesus is God. But since human bodies have limitations, and since bodies can be, well, frankly, icky, they're messy at times, they said it's demeaning to imagine that a God would actually become human. Bodies are icky, so obviously Jesus could not really have had one. It's probably metaphorical. So some of them said, well, this godness took on a human-shaped form. Looked like a human, but obviously couldn't actually have all of those icky things. Think about the last time you had the flu. That, that couldn't possibly be true of a god. Or some said, well, maybe this godness temporarily took up residence in the human Jesus of Nazareth right up to the crucifixion and then says, oh, good riddance, I'm out of here. And John's answer is, that isn't what the Spirit of God says. The Holy Spirit announces that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed, holy King, the Son of David that we read about in Romans chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit announces that this king has come in the flesh. He has shown up with skin and bones and muscle and blood. He is, in fact, human. And John says that any other claim is not a weakened Christianity. It is not Christianity. He says any spirit that acts like Jesus is someone other than the God who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us is not giving us an alternative view of Jesus that we need to think through and discuss. They're giving us a different Jesus. That's what Antichrist there in verse 3 fundamentally means. The idea of Antichrist is not primarily or fundamentally some shadowy villainous figure at the end of history. It is the idea of a replacement Christ. One that is designed to distract and detract from the real Jesus. And John says that's not some upcoming future threat to watch out for, someone to watch the newspapers for. He says that was true in the first century and it is true today. There is the danger that we will invent a Jesus that is not the real one. He warns us, don't let the culture around us determine what is 
what kind of Jesus is plausible or palatable or acceptable. Instead of letting others or letting ourselves say something like, well, the Jesus that I know would never, we have to come back and say, what has the Holy Spirit said about Jesus so that we know him as he really is? And the Holy Spirit, as we walk through the pages of Scripture, reveals that the incarnation is central to what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And he does that in at least three different ways. We're, we're, we're not going to linger long on any of them. But if you would turn to Matthew chapter 1, where we hear that the incarnation is critically important because it is how God becomes Emmanuel. God with us. So Matthew chapter 1, Matthew famously begins his gospel with 17 verses of names. That's not because Matthew was afraid he'd have too much blank space at the end of chapter 28. He's not just trying to kill time and fill fill pages. He's telling us that Jesus' story did not start in Bethlehem, and not just in a John 1 eternal Son of God sense. The promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the people of Israel, to David, all the way through, find their yes and amen in Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of David. So here we see Jesus as the perfect Israelite who will live out and perfectly fulfill Israel's destiny by spending his infancy in Egypt. By being declared as God's son as he goes through the waters of baptism. By spending 40 days trusting his father as he is hungry out in the same wilderness where Israel spent 40 years murmuring between bites of manna. We see Jesus intimately linked to Israel's history through his genealogy here. So Jesus' ancestors were among the 70 who went down to Egypt to escape famine. His ancestors were among the tens of thousands brought out by a mighty hand out of Egypt. They were among the Israelites who wrote the Psalms, who heard the prophets. His ancestors were among those who broke the covenant and were driven into exile. And after Zerubbabel's return, they were five centuries worth of unknown fathers and sons who are remembered only in these verses. And frankly, we usually skip over them, don't we? This morning, we're not going to take time to to work through each one. But most of us probably could not rattle off Jesus' ancestors after Zerubbabel. We have 500 years of people that we know nothing about other than they were descendants of David. They were heirs to a throne that didn't exist anymore. But that meant that as the adopted son of Joseph, Jesus, the son of Mary, is the legal heir to an unending throne of the shepherd of Bethlehem. And so as Matthew zooms in on the announcement given to Joseph, Joseph finds his promised bride is expecting a child that is not his. Take a look in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. When, when Matthew calls Joseph a just man, a lot of, a lot of translations give it a, a righteous man. Bear in mind, that doesn't mean he's a fair or a nice or a generous man. He he appears to be that. But what Matthew is telling us is he is a man who obeys God's law. And that means he cannot go through with this wedding. Out of kindness, it says that Joseph wants to handle the matter as quietly as possible. But he has to handle it. He cannot wink at adultery. He can't pretend nothing happened. But an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph. He affirms everything that Mary has said. He said, this child was conceived by none other than the Holy Spirit. Notice that the angel says, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife. Notice he won't be disobeying God's covenant law by covering over adultery. He says, no, this child is not adulterous. Remember, it's not the first time that the Spirit has created human life without two human parents being involved. He has done this before. As with Adam, the Spirit brings new life where there was none. But unlike Adam, he doesn't start with dust. Just as Eve had been taken from Adam's side to show that they were intimately and inseparably linked, He takes a cell from Mary and adds everything that's needed to start a baby growing inside her. This child's going to look a lot like Mary because he is really hers. Mary is not simply a way to bring Jesus in from stage left. He is really Mary's child, and that's vital. There was a pastor in the 4th century named Gregory Nazianzen, and he said, what has been assumed, what has not been assumed, cannot be restored. It is what is united with God that is saved. See, if Jesus was simply created within Mary instead of conceiving a child, Jesus would have looked human, but he wouldn't have been one of us. If Jesus had not actually joined himself to the lineage of David, he would be a a usurper to the throne. He would not belong there. If Jesus didn't actually join himself to the genealogy of Abraham, then God's promises to Abraham would not have come true. We would have to say something like, Near you, all the nations will be blessed. 
If Jesus wasn't actually born of a virgin, if he wasn't actually the seed of a woman, a descendant of Eve, he could not have fulfilled God's promise in Genesis 3.15, saying that the curse would be rolled back and the serpent's head crushed. If Jesus did not join the line of the first Adam, he could not be the last Adam. He could not save his people from, his, from our sins because they wouldn't be his people. But now this chosen God, this chosen son, this seed of the woman has come. It says he is God with us. The one who sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, who warned the Israelites not to draw near to him. The one who forbade even the Levites to look too closely at the ark because they weren't holy enough. This same God has taken on flesh and walked among us. And instead of us facing wrath and death, He is now welcoming us into a place of His goodness and His blessing. And that leads us, that substitution brings us to the second reason that the incarnation matters. In Philippians chapter 2, we see that the incarnation is critically important because it's the way in which Jesus humbles himself to redeem us. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. So remember, this comes in the context of Paul urging the Philippians to Christ-like, self-sacrificing humility. And Paul paints a rich picture of what it means for Jesus to set aside his own interests for our sake. Take a look there in verse 5. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he says in verse 6 that Jesus existed in the form of God. Now that, that doesn't mean that he just looked like God. Uh, writer Richard Mellick puts it this way. He says the word form means an outward appearance that's consistent with what is true. The form perfectly expresses the inner reality. He, he appears like God because he is God. And yet, even as he really was and is God, this son does not count this as something to take full advantage of. Different translations, different commentators have, have had inter, interrelated, slightly different views of what this word behind the word robbery says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There's good evidence that what this is talking about is often used to talk about something that you find and you say, oh, this, this would help me, I'm going to grab it. Whether that's money you find lying in the street, whether it's a position you're offered and you say, yes, that's going to help me, grab that. It isn't that the divine, eternal son shrinks back and says, oh no, I, I, I couldn't possibly be considered equal with God. He is equal with God. He is worthy of all of the worship and the praise 
and the glory and the honor that we were just singing about. But he doesn't grab hold and say, this is mine and I'm going to benefit from it. He says, I'm going to set aside the benefit, the rank, the privileges that come with that rank. He says in verse 7 that he takes on another form. The one whose form as God told the truth about himself takes on another form, the form of a bondservant. He doesn't stop being really and truly God, but he really and truly becomes a slave. That's what the word means. (coughs) He becomes a man, a suffering servant. (coughs) Excuse me. John Calvin put it this way. He said, Christ indeed could not renounce his divinity, but he kept it concealed for a time that under the weakness of the flesh it may not be seen. He doesn't walk through life saying, well, I'm God, so you need to treat me better. Remember, this shows up out in the wilderness, doesn't it? So as Jesus goes out there and he's been starving for 40 days, Remember, Satan comes and says, well, if you are the Son of God. By the way, that's not language of prove it. That's, well, given that you are the Son of God, you deserve food. So make yourself some bread. And Jesus' response is, my Father takes care of me. I trust my Father. I don't have to flash the God card to get what I want. He says this emptying happens as Jesus was made to be in appearance as a man, sharing our looks and our experiences. The the word by itself could mean that he simply looks like a human, but again, the rest of Scripture says the reason he looks like a human is he is one. Instead of demanding the riches of glory that were his by right, Jesus lowers himself, empties himself by taking on something new. Humanity. In a sense, the Dochists were right. This is demeaning. This is a lowering of himself. If we were to come up with this story, it would be insulting to God. But God comes up with this story. And he is very emphatic here. Jesus lowers himself, humiliates himself, by becoming one of the created ones. The unchanging God changed, took on flesh, took on a created nature that is now as fully part of Him as the divine nature. And He does it for us. And having emptied Himself, having lowered Himself by taking on created humanity, He then stoops further. He humbles Himself by obeying His Father all the way to the cross. Now whatever verse 3 calls us to in lowliness of mind. Brothers and sisters, we aren't going to lower ourselves more than Jesus has lowered himself. Whatever rights we set aside, whatever privileges we say, I will not exercise because my brother needs this more. We will not go beyond what Jesus has already done for us. Remember, this is a progressive, ongoing humiliation. He spends his entire life setting aside his privileges and dying to self. And that long road of carrying his cross 
finally leads to a literal cross. The Son of God who deserved worship not only stoops to take on a body, not only stoops to the point of death. Remember, He is the only one that, the only human that could not be touched by death. The wages of sin is death. Death has no claim on Him. And yet He chooses to die, to lay down His life for His sheep. But He dies in the humiliation and the horror of crucifixion. He's labeled as a traitor and a blasphemer so that he could die in the place of actual rebels and blasphemers, those who have shaken their fist at God and said, I don't want you, I will be king. Those who have said, I will be God of my own little universe, I will do what I will do, my will be done, this Jesus stands in our place. But he didn't stay humiliated because he did not stay in the grave. Notice verse 9. It says, Therefore, because Jesus has set aside his rights and privileges, because he has humbled himself all the way to the cross, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he was joined inseparably to the line of Adam, he is enthroned and he brings us with him. We, we won't take time, but remember there in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1.18, Paul says he is praying for the church at Ephesus and by extension to us, he is praying that we would know the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says that Holy Spirit is the one that took Jesus out of the grave, that raised him from the dead, that enthrones him in heavenly places above every name which is named, above every principality and power that exists. And then without taking a breath, he turns into what we call chapter 2, and he says, and you were dead too. says, you and I were spiritually dead God-haters. Dead because of trespasses, walking in line with the world, working, walking in line with Satan, deserving of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. The same Holy Spirit raises us to spiritual life, seats us in heavenly places with Christ, inseparable from Him. That's why we are co-heirs with Christ as we are joined to Him by faith, not by the things that we have done, not by the things we kind of sort of wish we had done, not by promising to change really this time. We are changed because this man, Jesus, got up from the dead and has sent His Holy Spirit to open blind eyes, to change dead hearts, to, for the first time, let us see Him as He really is, worthy of praise, worthy of love, worthy of our trust. That's why there are only two families. There are only two kinds of people, two groups of people. There are those who are joined to the first Adam. So we wake up and we head to the, to the bathroom mirror and we look and we say, we, yeah, that looks sort of human. 
Depends on the day more, maybe less. We look and say, yes, we're in the image of Adam. And that means with Adam we have died. With Adam we stand guilty. But there's another Adam that has come. And as he rescues his people, he remakes us into his image. Again, some days more, some days less. But genuinely changing us. And we are either joined to that death or we are joined to this life. But even before we see Jesus face to face, there's one other reason the incarnation is vital to our hope. We see it in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews 4, we see that the incarnation is critically important because it is how Jesus knows and serves us as our great high priest. He says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So Hebrews reminds us that high priests traditionally had been able to commiserate, had been able to be sympathetic with those who brought sin offerings because they're sinners too. Sometimes you and I act shocked, deeply shocked, horrified, when we see somebody sin. The fact is, you and I are not strangers to sin. The fact is, whatever that person did, maybe is different from our sin, maybe is more public than our sin, maybe it goes to a different depth than our visible sin. But the fact is, if we look long enough, we start saying, wait, no, that, that part does look familiar. I didn't sin exactly that way, but... You know, honestly, in the, right, in the right circumstances, I wouldn't be above it. If you put me in the right setting, yeah, that could happen. If I haven't done it, sometimes we, we semi-tongue-in-cheek say something about, but for the grace of God, there go I. That is a fact. It's not, a, it's not just a truism. It's not a cliche. The fact is, you and I could easily fall into any sort of sin, no matter how horrendous. You and I know what it is to be sinners. He says, and therefore these high priests had to come and they had to offer sacrifices for their sins before they could deal with anyone else's sins. And yet, Jesus, who has never sinned, verse 15 says, He is able to sympathize with us. Why is that? Because verse 15 also says, He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows temptation more thoroughly than any of us in this room. 
Because he never reached the point where you and I reach, where the temptation hits, and we say, you know, I've fought this. It may have been fought for seconds. It may be I've fought this for months. It keeps coming back, keeps nagging, keeps nipping at my heels, and we finally give in. Jesus didn't give in. He saw temptation down to the very bottom of it. How often have you and I been found ourselves sinning because we were taken by surprise? Something shocks us and the first thing that falls out of our mouth reflects our hearts and it wasn't necessarily what we were hoping to see there. Jesus, frankly, if anyone had a reason for culture shock, Jesus would be the one. Again, there were, you and I sometimes feel like we deserve things to go our way. Things ought to go smoothly, and when it doesn't, we say, it's not fair. We may not say it out loud, but we think it real hard. Jesus honestly deserves better than everything that happens to him. All the way through life. And yet, over and over again, he is patient, he is kind, he is just. And the reason he never sins is, again, not because he flashes the God card. He doesn't say, ha, you can't do that. You can't tempt me. It happens because as a man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he says, I love my Father more than I love that thing, that possibility, that comfort, that ease, that privilege. The reason he does not sin is he loves his Father more than anything else. A lot of times when we sin, we say something like, well, I am just human. Brothers and sisters, that's a poor excuse. I use it too, but it's a poor excuse. Jesus is human. Jesus is one of us, and He does not sin. Because being human does not make us sin. Not loving the Father does. So when we sin, our confession is not, well, I'm just human. Our confession is, I'm a human that does not love the Father all the way yet. The day's coming. We're not there yet. But we have a high priest who sympathizes and he knows. And his isn't a sympathy that says, oh, I know it's hard. I know you couldn't help it. His is a sympathy that says, I know you are weak. I know you are tired. I know your every weak point, and I am able to respond. Back in the 1990s, a singer by the name of Joan Osborne infamously asked, or maybe famously asked, what if God was one of us? And her entire song is premised on what if God had to go day by day through life the way we do and face trials and face boredom and face loneliness and face heartache? What if God was like that? Brothers and sisters, the Bible says this already happened. He has walked among us. He does know what you face. So when you and I pray, we pray to a God that doesn't have to imagine what it's like to be sick or hurting or heartbroken, or disappointed, or betrayed, or railroaded, or abandoned, or even killed. He knows. 
not just by divine omniscience. It's not just that he knows that we are weak. He knows by experience. He knows what it is like to be weak. And so when we pray, he strengthens us. Because he faced trials and temptations as a human being, because he resisted all the way to the deepest depths, he is able to strengthen you and me by the same Holy Spirit that empowered him so that we are able to stand. And as we stand, we realize we didn't stand alone. We do not stand alone. And notice that this high priest's term of office doesn't run out. There in verse 4 he says, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. As long as the today of Psalm 2 and the forever of Psalm 110 last, our high priest stands ready to make intercession for us to the Father that does not need convinced to love you and me. And even in eternity, think of this, our brother Jesus remains one of us. He remains unashamed to be called Son of Man. Michael Reeves said, there is now a man a real man with our flesh and blood, our experiences of the world, our humanity in heaven. A man now sits next to God in perfect harmony. And a man with a human hand will grasp us as we make our way into heaven. We shall be greeted by a face, the face of Jesus. Why does John warn us that anything short of the incarnation leaves us as non-Christians? Because only in the incarnation does it become possible for God to be with us and to save us from our sins. Because only in the incarnation does Christ step down from heaven to take away our death and join us to His eternal glory. And because only through the incarnation is Jesus fitted to become our great high priest who knows our weaknesses and overcomes them. Apart from the eternal Son of God becoming one of Adam's race, there is no hope. But because He was pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus has become Emmanuel. And He is able to save us to the uttermost because He is the one mediator, the only one needed between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for putting forward your Son. For in all eternity, planning this moment, when you would be joined to your creation, when the perfect Son of God would become one of us, no less perfect, no less worthy of worship, and yet actually, truly one of us. Would you remind us this week? 
when we are tempted to fear? Would you remind us of a high priest who has walked ahead of us? When we are tempted to sin, to settle for something less than your goodness, would you remind us of how far Jesus has stooped? Not to lead us into shame, but to lead us into glory and into joy and into gratitude. Would you fill us with delight? Would you fill us with boldness as we see this Jesus high and lifted up for all eternity and taking us with him? We ask it again in Christ's name. Amen.